All right, everybody, welcome to Flyers AD. Here is a uh, Tuesday, March 15, 2022. Here and uh, less than a week away from the trade deadline, just a couple days away from Giroux's 1,000th game as a Flyer, and uh, it's going to be a very, uh, very emotional uh, next couple days, don't you think, Anthony? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, it, it kind of feels bittersweet almost with the Giroux thousand games coming up because it's like, are you celebrating his thousand games? Are you giving him a farewell tour? Is it a bit of both? I mean, it, it still seems like there's a possibility here that Giroux stays with the Flyers. Like, I... I it seems like that is almost this guy's preference, which is truly bizarre to me. Yeah. Like, I thought he would be chomping at the bit to get the fuck out of here. But, <laughs> I mean, it seems like he's really struggling with this decision. And, you know, like, I spoke to someone last week in the Flyers front office, and they told me that, you know, he's very particular about where he wants to move to, whether that be location or whether that be... Uh, giving himself to win it, a chance to win the Stanley Cup, but either way, it seems like it's going to be a bit, uh, a bit of a sticky situation as it comes down to the wire here. Yeah, and uh, hold that thought. All right, we're back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um... Yeah, Giroux and moving on. I think it's going to be... Uh, I, I, I I, am still pretty firmly convinced one way or another he's going to be here next season. Whether he just doesn't leave at the deadline at all or whether he signs in the offseason. I feel like we just... We have not seen the end of Giroux in Philadelphia yet. I, I, I think he gets dealt. I would ultimately assume... There's I'm no sorry. way... The, <laughs> Fuck it, you hit the cough button. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> There's no way Giroux, um, I think, ultimately doesn't get traded at the deadline. I don't think they do all this, you know, uh, I mean, all this uh, stuff they've done for ESPN and the stuff they're putting out on Twitter for his 1,000th game. Like, it definitely feels like this is the end of the road for now. But for some reason, I just, I do not feel like we've seen the end of Giroux in Philadelphia. So, I don't know. I guess we'll ultimately see on that one. But, uh I guess, in a sense, the door's probably always open for a reunion. I don't think the Flyers would, you know, turn down having Giroux back in the future. And it kind of brings up almost like something that's fundamentally broken, as you've so eloquently said, for what feels like 14, 15 months now, with the fact that <laughs> no matter how bad things get and no matter how shitty things are, it's like nothing is ever going to change. And again, this is not me saying that Giroux is the cause for the last 10 years or he's the problem in the room or anything like that. We always talk about how we're not there, so we don't like to speculate on it. But unfortunately, he is the face of this team. And we've also attached Sean Couturier to this conversation in the sense of until these guys are gone is the mentality and the culture really going to change? And you hear Mike Yo's comments this past Sunday as he was livid. And, you know, I've gone on record numerous times saying that I don't think highly of Mike, Mike Yo as a head coach, but I got to tell you, 
he's starting to win me over just strictly with the way he's talking and these media availabilities because of how pissed off he's getting. And it almost kind of screams to me, if you keep Giroux and he sticks around, what kind of message is it sending to all the newer players that this guy who's been the face of the team, the leader of the team, the captain of the team, the best offensive player of the team for the last decade is still around after three out of the last four years being an absolute fucking train wreck. And this one arguably being the worst of the bunch. Now, obviously, injuries had a lot to do with that, of course. But, I mean, this is unacceptable what's going on here. The last four years, because the years before that, they were rebuilding, so whatever. I don't try and hold too much value in those in this particular conversation. But the last four years in a vacuum have been embarrassing. And how, for the most part, all these players have survived it through three coaches and two general managers, I don't understand. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, the old core of Giroux and Simmons and Chen and Voracek. Forget them. And you brought it up, too, with, like, Konechny and Sanheim and Lawton and Provorov. Like, Limblom kind of to an extent as well. JVR has been here for four years again now. Like, what kind of message is it sending that these guys continue to be part of this group that is consistently ran back? I can't think, and we've talked about this on, on Frequent Flyer in the past, like, I can't think of a team that has been together as long as the Flyers have with absolutely no success whatsoever. You know, I can't think of another group of players that have been around five, six, seven, ten years at this point with no success. You know, it just, it's such a strange formula that they keep fucking running it back under. And, you know, to, you know, take a step back to Mike Yao for a second, I'm pretty much in the same boat as you. I don't think highly of this guy, but, uh, I, <laughs> he's certainly winning me over because he's fed up. He's, th he's been the head coach for three months and he's already throwing his hands up in the air saying, I don't know what the fuck to do here. And, uh. That's that. That's I think that's speaking more volumes than anything at this point, you know. And when they played the Chicago game a couple weeks ago over the weekend, and Mike Yo gave that you know <laughs> come to Jesus speech before the game, and everyone stepped up for him, and oh yeah, this is it, this is the turning point. And then they went right back out to being, you know, three week old Sprite, just flat as shit. So I don't know. I, I got a feel for Yao. I assume he's not coming back regardless at this point, but he did say he's going to start, you know, cutting ice time and scratching people. Um, I'll believe it when I fucking see it, but, uh, you know, at least he seems fed up and it seems like he's ready to start making changes. But yeah, he's in a very unfavorable situation right now. And as for the team, I just don't know. I, I would assume the Konechny's and Sanheim's and potentially Provorov's of the world. And those are the guys that you're probably going to see traded this summer. I think you're going to see an uh, ax taken to the half of the roster that was not touched last year. And maybe it's the best thing. Maybe a lot of these middling guys, these guys that are in their mid twenties that were part of the Hextall rebuild that haven't done jack shit. Maybe it's time to move on from them and bring in some fresh faces in here and try again. I just, <laughs> I don't know what the answer is here. You know, everyone keeps following. Oh, they got to rebuild. They got to rebuild. Well, it's not going to fucking happen. You know, even if it's the right move, it's not going to happen. And we ranted about this last week and it's driving me nuts. Cause I see it on Twitter 50 times a day. 
But, you know, they gotta they gotta figure something out, because it's clear that this team ain't gonna win shit, and, you know, I don't know, it sends a bad message for Giroud, but the fact that Couturier is locked up for eight more fucking years at this point doesn't really matter whether Giroud's here or not, so... I don't know. It's, it definitely puts them in a really bad situation, though, heading into the offseason with, you know, so much to change and so little time and resources to do it. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing that kind of scares you about this, like, a retool on the fly plan, because it's like you guys are going to run out of time with players that you believe to be the core. It seems like their core, in their mind, is Lawton, Couturier, Hayes and Ryan Ellis. That's basically, and probably Carter Hart. Those seem, and now Rosmus Ristolainen, those seem like the guys that they want to push forward with. Everyone else is interchangeable. Now, do I think both Provorov and Sanheim get moved? No. I think maybe both of them come back, and or maybe one of them gets moved. I think Travis Konechny kind of has to be moved, no matter how good slash bad he has played or will be playing. I just think he's a guy that you have to try and parlay into a centerman. And there's just some guys here, like the veterans, like JVR has to go. Giroux, uh, we've already talked about. Broussard, probably not going to come back. Yandel, not going to come back. It's just... It just always seems that no matter how hard they try, and I will say this again, that I think that most of Fletcher's moves last offseason in a vacuum paid off. But it's just that there is so much else wrong with this team, and you're fighting against, you know, father time here with some of these older guys. How much longer are you going to be able to keep doing this? And then it kind of begs the question, like, what happens if next year it goes off the rails again? Because it seemed like this year was like the last chance you had with this group of players. And I was okay with it. I said, okay, you want to try it one more time in a regular year, a non-COVID year? Fine. Have at it. But it's just gotten so bad. And they want to do it again in a year that with the draft being what it's supposed to be in 2023 could really reshape your organization and, I, and I've heard this a few times, and I, I wish I could cite exactly who said it, but, like, Fletcher was gifted an opportunity here at this deadline with several players that you would have been able to recoup a lot of assets with. Ristolainen, you've already re-upped, and Claude Giroux, it really seems kind of non-definitive what you're going to get back to him if he's going to leave. It, it's just, I don't, like, again... I agree that a rebuild is needed, but we know it's not going to happen. Now my question is, is how much longer are we going to keep plugging down this road until they essentially have no choice? I mean, they don't have much longer, right? How much longer? If they run it back next year and do whatever fuck that is they're going to do, and they suck again next year, I mean, how much longer can you pull the, we're just going to retool a little bit more card? Sooner or later, you're going to hit a wall. Especially depending on how many fucking draft assets they give up this summer. You know, if they dip into their reserves, which are already kind of dwindling, then what do you do? You know, you may have no choice but to bite the bullet and start selling people off next season. So, I don't know. That one all depends. But I think the Sanheim-Provorov debate is an interesting one. You know, you got Cam York coming up. 
who they put on the fucking right side with goddamn Keith Yandel this whole season, which is not doing nobody any favors. But, you know, you, he theoretically, I think, could be a pretty easy top four guy on the left side. Provorov and Sanheim, you know, Sanheim, at the beginning of the season, the foregone conclusions seemed to be that York would come up, you would get rid of Sanheim, Ristolina would get re-signed because they weren't going to acquire the guy just to let him go, regardless of what anybody wanted. Like, this was the plan all along. So it seemed like that would be the ultimate move. But now that Sanheim has finally, after all these years, pulled his head out of his ass and is playing some good hockey, and Provorov has been the one struggling again, you gotta wonder what they're thinking here. I would assume you cannot bring both of them back. You've got York and Zemul on the left side. There's no reason to bring both of them back. Those are two of your biggest trade chips on the team in Sanheim and Provorov right now, so you have to assume one of them gets flipped, but I don't know. I don't know which one it was anymore. I, I, I still think Sanheim's the one that ultimately gets dealt, but uh, at least it poses an interesting question. I don't think it's as quite as black and white as it was even just a few months ago. Well, no, it's because Sanheim has really stepped up, and in their specific roles, you could kind of make the case that Sanheim's been their best defenseman. I still think overall Provorov is a better defenseman, but you can't disregard what Travis Sanheim has done this year. And this is also with tough deployment as well. Like, I mean, five on five, Travis Sanheim's gotten tougher deployment than Ivan Provorov. You know, 30 seconds more time on ice at five on five, starting 40.6% of his time in the defensive zone as opposed, as opposed to 42.2 for Provorov. Now, obviously, all in all, I believe Provorov plays about three minutes more than Sanheim because he is relied upon so heavily on special teams, with it, which is a completely argument in and of itself. But when I look at these two guys, I say to myself that they're pretty much, at least this season, on par defensively. And the defensive metrics would agree with that. I would say that Provorov is maybe slightly better when he's, you know, when they're both at their ceiling. But it's been the ability of Travis Sanheim to break the puck out of the offensive zone and to move the puck off ice and have positive impacts in the offensive zone. Now, these are things that I think are tougher to quantify on, you know, on a stat sheet because... At what times of games are they being deployed? Who are they playing against? I think we could all agree that more times than not, Provorov is getting those tougher deployment minutes than Travis Sanheim in terms of who he's playing against. Obviously, five on five, as I just indicated, Sanheim is getting moderately tougher deployment than Provorov. But my question here is, is let's say you move on from Provorov and you elevate Travis Sanheim into the role that Provorov has been playing this season, beside Justin Braun on the de facto top pair, what happens? Because the thing is, is that you could compare Ristolainen to Braun against each other, but in my opinion, Ristolainen is a bit more durable in the sense that he won't break down over a game. I think in a vacuum, Braun is the much superior defensive defenseman, but... Ristolainen can be relied upon to probably play more minutes at a higher level and actually move the puck up ice. I don't think Justin Braun can be relied on in any which way, especially in a top pairing role, to move the puck out of the zone at any type of you know consistency. So I think Sanheim has benefited from gelling with his partner. And I know people hate Rasmus Ristolainen, but I think he has helped Travis Sanheim. Obviously, Sanheim has been the better one there. But I worry here is if you put Sanheim into Provorov's role 
for next season. And assuming that Ryan Ellis isn't healthy again, because you can't really compare the two as long as Ryan Ellis has been out all season against, you know, not playing alongside Ivan Provorov. I just worry about how much better Sanheim would be in Provorov's role. Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of been the thing with that second pair in Sanheim and Ristolainen in general, is the fact that you're kind of limited in how you can use them, because neither one of them are probably going to succeed if you up their ice time, right? And it was the main reason that I would have been against re-signing Ristolainen in the first place is finding somebody who's a little more dynamic, who you can use in the top pair in case Ellis isn't available next season. And you really don't have that opportunity now. Um, He's kind of a second pair guy. And once you start up in his minutes, you see his play decline. And I think Sanheim would be very much in the same boat. If you remove Provorov from the situation entirely and you boost up Sanheim and then let York fall into Sanheim's current role, like can Sanheim play this good with an uptick in special teams time and the heavier minutes at five on five and just it's gonna be a gamble that's a risk you know whereas do you just run it back with Provrov and cross your fingers that Ryan Ellis can stay healthy next season and then Ellis can drag the best out of Provrov you know the a lot of fans seem to be very angry at Provrov they definitely are voicing their opinions that they want him gone but it's like that feels like a risk (laughs) considering these people still cannot get over fucking Nicholas Abe Kubel playing seven minutes a night in the fucking Colorado Avalanche I find it hard to believe we're just going to be totally happy that Ivan Provrov is going to go to a competent defensive team and look like a goddamn superstar next season. Everyone's going to fucking bitch about it. And I think that's what could happen. You, Why don't you build a blue line here that could work well for Ivan Provorov rather than getting rid of Ivan Provorov and promoting Sanheim, who has a checkered past in general? You know, I think Cam York is good. I don't know if he's good enough to step into the unquestioned number one right now. I don't know if he's good enough to bail he and Sanheim out of the situations. So it's, a, uh, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I definitely think this blue line looks much different next year than it does right now. So, you know, I guess we'll see who ultimately takes the fall here. But again, I expect at least one of those two to be moved in the offseason. Probably Sanheim. And then you get to the other part of this is like, do you want to sell low on Ivan Provorov? Like, do you want to trade this guy while his market value is at an all-time low? I think the the best course of action here is literally to just wait it out with him. And then if his game gets back on track, let's say Ryan Ellis comes back next year and he's playing at a high level, well, then it's a win-win scenario. If you want to keep him and, you know, use him as a top-pairing defenseman, then great, you have a top-pairing defenseman. Or if you say, okay, now he's playing well beside Ellis, but we know what's going to happen if he doesn't have Ryan Ellis, then you trade him while his uh, value is is at an all-time high. I I just, I don't see how it benefits anyone right now to trade Ivan Provorov at this moment because teams are not going to offer what he's actually worth. And even if you don't think he's a number one defenseman, which is completely valid at this point, you can't tell me that he's as bad as he is now. Like, I had some people saying that he's a low-end second-pair defenseman. Yeah. Like, like he's not, okay? At worst, he's a very good number two, which is still fine. But he's not even playing that well right now. If you trade him to the Los Angeles Kings, let's say, for pennies on the dollar, and you put him beside Drew Doughty, watch what Ivan Provorov is going to do. Yes, exactly. Now, and, and that's the whole problem with this debate right now is that, you know what, if you don't have faith in him long term, that's okay. But wait for Ryan Ellis to come back, 
have his out his play obviously take up. We saw him playing very well the first month of the season, and then trade him then because at that point Cam York will probably be more accustomed to the NHL. Maybe you hang on to Sandheim until then. But Sandheim's the completely different side of that coin, is that his value will arguably never be higher. So do you use Travis Sandheim right now with maybe another piece and parlay it into a top six centerman? Like, I, I look at a team like the Winnipeg Jets, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but, like, if they miss the playoffs this year, you think that they would have to make some major type of change to their core up front. Does that mean moving on from a Mark Shifley or a Pierre-Luc Zubois? Like, I mean, if a Sanheim and a Konechny could get you a Zubois or something, like, that's something that I would look at more instead of trading Provorov for, you know, a first-round pick and a B-level prospect, like, because this team is clearly looking to win now. So, I mean... This isn't me saying that I think that Sanheim or that Provorov is better than Sanheim at this very moment because he's not. I'm just saying that I think at their very peaks, Provorov is better. And trading him while his value is at an all-time low is going to be do nobody any favors. And we talk about this all the time yeah. about how fans just want to trade all the shit players for gold. Mm -hmm. But they want to hoard all the players that are worth anything worth of value. And that's the problem here is that you can't just be like, oh, he's playing that garbage right now. Trade him for a top six center. Oh, JVR is a vile of dog shit. Trade him for Jeff Petrie. Like these things aren't going to happen. You have to evaluate what players you think will rebound with a better supporting cast around them and hang on to them and bank on them kind of refining their past glory like a guy with Provorov and a guy like Sanheim. You have to be like, OK. He's playing super well right now, and we could be completely comfortable keeping this guy to be on a second pair. But is this the most opportune time to parlay him into something we desperately need? I heard uh, the other day, like, he sucks, he sucks, he sucks, and then they want to trade Prover of one for one for Jake Chikrin. <laughs> like, that's not how this works. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like Provorov... Even if you can get his play back up to, like, slightly above average, he's more worth it than Sanheim is because you have York. And that's the, like, that's the ultimate, you know, thing here is you've got York and Zamula on the left side. So you can bear to lose one of those two and be fine with Cam York. I think York will be fine. I, you know, we saw him for the brief minute that he was here um, during the, the COVID thing when he was your top guy, essentially, and he played fucking great. Yeah, there's going to be some bumps in the road, but, you know, he'll figure it out. He's a rookie. You know, he'll he'll get that under control in the season. I think this guy is going to be very good at the NHL level, at least on par with what Sanheim and or Provar are doing right now. So, you know, I, I've heard <laughs> they, you trade him for an all-time low. You want to fucking... We've got to trade Provorov because his value sucks. Well, we can't trade him because his value's too low. Okay, great. Well, then he starts playing better, and then nobody's going to want to fucking trade him again. So, you know, you're going to have to make some hard decisions this year. And I think a lot of that just plays into the general shittiness of the team. And I put a piece out a couple weeks ago. Like, there's a good chance your favorite players are not going to be here next year. The Konechny's and Sanheim's of the world. You know, we've touched upon this as well. It's not you're getting rid of them for the sake of getting rid of them. It's that you're getting rid of them because they're your best trade ships. Right. And with all the holes you need to fill, you can 
bear to part ways with Sanheim because you have York to take his spot. You know, you have nobody to take a top six center role. So, you know, I would be not surprised at all if Konechny and Sanheim are packaged to a team like Winnipeg for Mark Shifley uh, in the offseason, you know, in some kind of package deal like that, or Dubois, whoever across the league you want to throw into that title. But, yeah, I would assume that's what ends up happening here. Um, but I guess we'll have to uh, wait and see how things ultimately shake out over the summer. I, it's it's tough because you're going to be forced to trade guys that have some value here. And because there's just so many guys that you theoretically want to get rid of, but just won't get you anything. Like even a guy like, let's say Oscar Limblom. Like I'm not a huge Oscar Limblom fan. And I know that I believe it was Anthony Sanfilippo in Crossing Broad wrote something in his piece that like at this juncture, he can't be brought back because of his salary. But a guy like Limblom, like at this point, given what his trade value most likely is, is it not just better off to keep him and hope he refines something on a more consistent basis on, let's say, the third line with Kevin Hayes next season? Limbaugh's been playing fucking great lately. I think he's finally starting to get his shit together, you know, both physically and just kind of uh, getting his game back to that level. I believe he's, what, the highest scorer on the team since December or something like that, or the second highest scorer. You know, he's doing pretty well right now. I think if you can get rid of JVR and you have then a defined role for Lindblom uh, with probably Kevin Hayes, because assuming you get a top six center, they'll split time with Couturier. So it would be Hayes in the third line and Lindblom and, you know, maybe Allison on the right side. Like, that's a line I would be totally fine with. I think you can keep Lindblom and set him up to succeed because he's definitely got the tools. And I think we're finally starting to see glimpses of, of him kind of get back to that game finally. So it doesn't make sense to keep him because of his cap. That is true. That $3 million is is going to be enticing to move because you're probably going to want to you know, pay somebody else of that money. But at the same time, I think you can work around that if Lindblom can continue to produce at the current clip that he is. If he can finally come back and, and look like his you know, pre-diagnosis self maybe you have something here and he's a worthwhile middle six winger uh, on on you know when he's playing well and, and the offense is clicking which it is right now the flyers essentially have two good to decent middle six lines as of this as of this juncture going into next season assuming Giroux isn't back you would have probably Farabee, Couturier and Atkinson as your second line Limblom, Hayes, Allison slash Lawton as your third line. But you're missing an entire top line worth of talent. And that's the biggest issue here is where are you going to find this top line worth of talent? Now, that's not to say that you have to go and trade for Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. You could take. Though if they want to, I'd be fine with that. (laughs) Like you could take more of the approach of, let's say, the Flyers had in 2010 where like you didn't have one over the top first line, but like three very good second lines that it was like a hard matchup game. Like who was really the first line Hartnell, Briere, Leno or Gagne, Richards, Carter. You know what I mean? Something along those lines, but getting three players like that in one off season, like that is a tough pill to ask, you know, or that, that, you know, it's just, I don't see how it's possible in the current confines of the NHL, the current NHL landscape with salary cap barely moving up and all this. Like, yeah, maybe you could 
get a guy like Pierre-Luc Dubois or someone along those lines for Sanheim and Konechny. And maybe you bring in like a young offensive piece who has that potential going forward if you do ultimately trade Claude Giroux. But it still begs the question of like, is it realistic to expect them to bring in three top six pieces, forget top line, but top six pieces between now and next season? It's going to be tight. I don't think it's impossible, but it's very, very unlikely. Um, you know, you got to... <laughs> you don't have that many trade ships, which I think is is kind of the worst part. And we just kind of touched upon that with Konechny and Sandheim. Like, those are your two best. And outside of that, it's not great. You know, maybe you have somebody like Atkinson, but then do you get rid of Atkinson? Is that just, you know, is that a lateral move or however you can find for that? Do you want to give up on Scott Lawton because he feels like the one guy that I'd keep through all of this fucking mess? You know, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's an interesting little one. You're screwed when it comes to offer sheets because you just don't have the fucking proper compensation getting rid of your second round picks uh, next season. But, you know, I, I really don't know what you do here when it comes to adding that kind of talent and you know even if you can get a line a and a dubois or something you know does that work well with Farabee? maybe you'd sign Gaudreau in free agency if you're by the grace of god you take some kind of hometown discount you get him cheap and that you can make it work if the stars align but it is going to be incredibly difficult for fletcher to bring in the pieces that this team absolutely needs to succeed rather than just kind of rearranging middle six winger travis connecting for a middle six winger insert name here right and i feel like that may be the more likely route they take versus making any legitimate upgrades and then you look at kind of like what they're doing with the goaltending like i would assume that you're just going to roll with hart and sandstrom next year right that'd be what i would do sandstrom is more than earned a a full-time role i'd assume jones is gone on monday and they call up sandstrom and let him finish out the season that's what i would do i would have called up sandstrom weeks ago actually um but as far as i'm concerned that's your tandem for next year and you can probably get sandstrom for you know a million dollars for a season or two provided he has a full-time nhl spot it's unfortunate urson got hurt this year and has been out basically all season because i really enjoyed watching him uh for the you know few weeks that he was healthy at the beginning of the year but uh yeah sandstrom has been very, very good in the AHL, especially considering what the fuck that team's looked like this year. Um, I would be totally fine with a hart Sonstrom pair next year for eh, at least the season. What do you make of the recent conversation, or it's not so much recent, but like it's kind of kicked up mostly recently, especially after Yo's comments and, you know, the some reports about Ivan Provorov not being a great guy in the room or this, that, and the other thing, like, do you think that there is a serious issue in the locker room here that no matter how much talent they may add, it may be too much to overcome? Yes, absolutely. Really? So, oh, that, I think that is problem number one here beyond anything on ice is the fact that there is something going on behind the scenes where shit's fucked. You know, you kept your old leadership around too long. The young guys coming up, the Sanheims, Konechny's, Lindblom's of the world, you know, the people that are in their mid-20s now, never took the baton and ran with it in Pearl and throw him in that mix as well. And because of that, you're in some weird ooze between the generations, and now you're looking at the third generation to kind of come up here with York and Forrester and, you know, guys like that. And, you know, can they come up and make it, or are they going to get swallowed into the black abyss as well and you know theoretically last season you got rid of your problem children in Voracek and Gossesbear and that hasn't done a goddamn thing so I, I think it's 
a lot of poison behind the scenes that for whatever reason we're not seeing. I think it, it just comes off as just a bunch of guys. We're all just friends. We're going to you know get together and play hockey a few nights a week. You know, they're afraid to criticize each other. They're afraid. Didn't fucking, who just said it was a pro and Yao the other week that said the same thing? Like, yeah, we're fucking afraid to criticize each other. It's like, fuck, man. There's just no accountability on this team whatsoever. And it's why people's play can slips and they just don't fix it. And Yao's getting, clearly getting frustrated with the whole thing. You know, he's ready to throw his hands up and fucking quit at this point. Just because he's dealing with these lackluster shitheads that, you know, need a goddamn Miracle on Ice level speech every time they play a game. You know, you shouldn't have to do that. Even through the injuries, there's enough talent here to squeak some kind of fucking competition out. But, you know, we just saw it in the game against Montreal. You gave up in the third period. You gave up a shorthanded goal to end the game and then lost in overtime for like the 10th time this year that they've done something so goddamn stupid like that. So I think there's some serious problems behind the scene. And, you know, I'm sure someday down the line when Justin Braun is on... Uh, the Cam and Strick podcast. We'll get a Bobby Clark type interview out of him and, and he'll spill some beans about what's happening here. But yeah, I think it's dangerous. And it's why I ultimately don't want fucking Sean Couturier to be the captain. It's why I don't want him around this team in general. Is because even if you get rid of Giroux, then you just pass the fucking problem to Couturier, who's been here just as long! You know, so... <laughs> I don't know. That 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 to me, that's the ultimate big issue here. Is there's a, probably a lot of behind the scenes stuff that, for whatever reason, is is uh, really hampering this team. And that's why it begs the question of you know this retool on the fly business that they're you know going to continue and like they've been trying to do essentially since Fletcher got here. Like, how much farther is it going to be taken? Like. You have to think that after a certain point, the Flyers won't have a choice but to completely blow it up. But when will that come? Like, it seems like the ownership does not really do any due diligence as to what's going on behind the scenes. They just see the dollars and cents aspect and know that a rebuild would probably result in that even plummeting even further. But beyond that, like, this is kind of why... And this is not me defending Chuck Fletcher. Like, obviously, I've lost more faith in him after this season for obvious reasons. But when I hear ownership speak and I hear him speak, and you've said numerous times that, like, he clearly knows what's wrong with this team. Yeah. He's not a buffoon. But I just can't imagine that he truly believes that the best course of action is to continue on this path by trying to salvage the Ron Hextall plan, because that's still what's going on here is still trying to salvage the Ron Hextall plan. But as long as this, these are the marching orders from ownership, does it really matter who the general manager is? Because I ask, is there anything more that he could do than what he's done in a realistic world? What else could he have done? And I've tried to look at it. And that's why, like, when I hear people bitch about Fletcher, and at this point it's completely well-founded, I say to myself, like, but if his orders are this, what else could he have done? And for the life of me, I can't figure out figure it out. No, I agree. And, you know, it's why I have not torn this guy apart. It's why I have not torn him apart yet going into this summer, is I want to see what the hell happens first before I unleash on him. I mean, you look at what the fuck he did last season, and it was the most moves in an off season since 2015 everything individually was more or less fine 
You know, what more could this guy do? And, you know, I, I do think that this team and this front office is going to be desperate enough this summer that something crazy could happen. There could be a big name or two added here. Um, so, again, I want to see what happens before I ultimately rip him a new one. But I don't know. I, I find it very difficult to put the blame on Fletcher. And yes, he's complacent in all of this, but at the same time, you know, he's just following his orders at this point. He seems like a smart enough guy, and everything he said in interviews over the last year tends to hint to that, you know, that he's fully aware of what's going on and fully aware of what needs to get done to put them on the right track. So you can shit on Fletcher all you want, but at the end of the day, like, I, I think this guy's hands are tied um, more than we realize. And, you know... Hopefully, you know, the, the blank check comments uh, made by Dave Scott at the, the presser in was it January, hopefully they're real. Hopefully they're real and he just lets Fletcher do his thing and, you know, unfortunately they're going to keep running it back and they're going to make some changes rather than take a step back and tear it down. But, you know, if you're serious about finding top-end talent, if you're just going to let Fletcher do whatever the fuck he needs to do to get that high-end talent, maybe we have a chance here. But, uh, again, uh, it's just... It's not great, and, you know, you've worked yourself into such a corner here. Like, we're approaching, like, dying days of Paul Holmgren era, you know, where it's like, well, we're trying so hard to save this cup team where we're going to bring in, you know, Pavel Kubina, you know? <laughs> we're getting to that level of, of kind of desperation now, so... We shall see what happens this summer, but, uh, yeah, it's going uh, to be a rough one. Do you honestly think, because obviously everyone is beating the drum for Danny Briere, do you honestly think that if Briere was in charge, things would be any different? No, not at all. And and there's a part of me that almost wishes he was in charge right now, just so we can stop blaming Fletcher. <laughs> I think people are... People are going to bury Fletcher no matter what happens because they want Danny Briere, right? No matter how that wrist aligning situation came to end, whether they signed him for $5 million or $4 million or $3 million, or they trade him for a second and a third round pick, as long, if they did not get more than they gave up for him last year, people were going to be pissed off. That's just what was going to happen. You know, there was a no-win situation there for Fletcher. And I feel like a lot of that is going to happen this year. If they trade Travis Konechny for Mark Shifley, even if they ultimately end up winning that deal big, people are going to lose their fucking shit because they lost their favorite player in Travis Konechny and they're going to blame Fletcher. Right? We see all this Gosses Bear talk on Twitter. Oh, Gosses Bear has this many points today great it doesn't matter at the end of the day trading him was the right move you know but because Fletcher did oh it's, it's, it's bad so I just I don't know I don't really think Breer's got a better chance to succeed here I mean if anything he's gonna be a rookie GM under fucking Dave Scott you know I don't think he's gonna come in here and rock the boat that much you know I, I think he's just gonna be following orders at the same time the only difference is fans are going to give him a little bit more leeway because they love him so much it was the same thing with the Hextall thing. How long, How many years did Hextall have this fan base eating out of the palm of his hand before people started waking up? Like three or four years, you know? So I think Breer could have very much have the same, you know, benefit of the doubt when he comes in. And probably when... <laughs> Breer's going to get promoted when, Heck, when uh, Fletcher ultimately fails, right? I think this offseason maybe Fletcher's last if the season next year goes south. You know, if, if if his moves ultimately don't pan out, I would assume Breer is probably GM this time next year, right? But 
you know, if he leads the team through a rebuild because they've got no other choice, then, you know, maybe he'll be fine and people eat out of his hands. But I, I don't know. I just don't see Briere stepping in here and doing anything different than what Chuck Fletcher would do. You know, just given the current scenario that is happening around him right now. I just don't see the marching orders changing until the people at the top, you know, give the green light to. Yeah. Like, that's what I don't really get here. And look, I think Breer is a very smart guy. I think that he has a bright future ahead of him as an executive. But I just, if your marching orders are to keep this team competitive, which is a borderline, you know, impossible task at this point, especially beyond like the season in front of you, because maybe they could swing something to the point where they get this team back on track just towards the playoffs next year. But then beyond that, when Katori is a year older, Hayes is a year older, Ellis is a year older, like you're really you're you're kind of on borrowed time here with this group. And that's where like I feel like Briere might only come in when it's time to really gut this thing down. And even at that, I don't know if it would just be Danny Briere. Like I think that maybe they would hire or keep Fletcher on as the president or hire an exterior president to help guide the ship here. Uh, I've been told that he's very good at scouting Danny Breer. Like that's kind of like his strong suit with this team. He's worked with the Flyers player development, which I guess isn't that great given the recent track record. <laughs> but I just I don't see how you would feel comfortable just giving Breer the reins here to try and just do the same thing that Fletcher's been tasked with doing. Like, what Fletcher's been tasked with doing here is absolutely atrocious. Like, he's not even been allowed to put his complete stamp on this organization. I know we could talk about Ellis. I know we could talk about Atkinson and all these moves. But it's just, like, the core players. I know, well, I guess that's not completely true based on um, what... uh, what Scott said, naming Ellis and Hayes as those guys, but guys like Giroux and guys like Kutnechny and guys like Katori and Provrov and Hart, none of these are Fletcher guys. No. And I don't think I've ever seen a general manager be in place for north of three years and still be running with a core group of guys that was assembled by his predecessor and the guy before his predecessor. They're hell-bent on, on you know, trying to get the most out of the Hextile era. The rebuilding era, right? They're trying to capitalize on that, even though it was a flawed rebuild to begin with. And, you know, you put yourself in a really weird situation there. And, I mean, I guess maybe last season he had a you know, bit more leeway. And I assume this offseason he's going to have a bit more leeway as well when it comes to making changes to that group. Because they can't just keep running it back with the same fucking group of players year after year. But, uh, yeah, the fact that it has gotten this out of control is uh, <laughs> is just insane. Once the AV thing went south, I kind of knew it was over. And maybe that just seems like me being an AV apologist, but I was, was just... The telltale sign, though. If <laughs> This team gave up on another coach, a very high-praised coach. You know, fans hate him all they want, but at the end of the day, very few people out there have the track record that AV does, you know. And they fucking gave up on him. Again, after giving up on how many coaches previous, you know. And now we're three months into Mike Yao and everyone's already gave up on him, you know. It's just like, it's 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 the group of players, and again, this ties the whole episode back to what we've been talking about. Whatever it is that's in that room right now, 
uh, something's wrong and there's no compete level there's no whatever you're something is poisoning that room something has poisoned that room and it's beyond saving quite frankly that would be like my big answer for a teardown i do believe you can find pieces in the off season and make trades however unlikely they may be you can make trades the caliber to get a few players that could salvage this group but i think the poison in the room whatever it is is just too goddamn much to overcome and it's already affected the younger guys the pro rob and sanheims and connectings and lindbloms of the world to a point where that whole group is burned out as well you know it's just there's so much to do here and you know there needs to be substantial change. You got to flip the other entire half of the roster you didn't touch last year. And can you do that in one off season? Can you go back to back summers of changing essentially, you know, 90% of the overall team? Why not just rebuild a fucking whatever? I don't care. <sighs> well, the AV thing to me that shocked me was because in 1920, it wasn't fool's gold the way they were playing. Like, they were, like, a top 10 team in almost every team metric. Like, I remember coming on here, and I was Mr. Positivity back then when we first started doing this show. And I was saying, like, these guys are playing really good hockey. They were playing very well. And the thing is, is that they even look good in the bubble, too, in the round robin. Yeah. They look damn good. And then I don't know what the fuck happened. But the fact that they completely quit on a guy, and this isn't completely on the players. Like, obviously, AV has to shoulder some of this blame, too. But I think AV was more because he got so fucking fed up that these group of babies just quit mm -hmm. when they were a legitimately good team. I think the one thing I would fault AV 100% for was the way he kind of, like, spoke about Carter Hart in the media last year. I thought that was rather uncalled for, but whatever. Um... But think about your guy who finally got this team that is a group that had been a group of underachievers for several years, playing like a top 10 team, finished second in the Metropolitan Division, finished first in the round robin tournament in the bubble, and then goes to the second round of the of the 2020 playoffs, which was uneventful, but still they still got there. And then last year, they just completely quit and play like dog shit. I would get fucking fed up, too. I don't understand how this group of players just completely mailed it in with a guy who had them playing like a, a legitimately good hockey team. And that, to me, was indicative that this was far past sa being savable. Yeah, they, you know, they... <laughs> Oh, they gave him one AV, and now we're three months into Yao, and they're doing the same thing. I mean, Yao is just flat out, just in not so many words, telling the team to go fuck himself in the media, and I, I very much appreciate that. Like, <laughs> I just said that, like, listen, I don't like Mike Yao. I was very critical of the guy when he got hired. You know, I think he did a good job in, as, a, as an, in the assistant role. But, you know, I mean, he's clearly just at the point where it's like, what do I do here? You know? <laughs> what what do you, what more could he possibly do to get them to 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 put a constant stream of good games together? And it's been the issue for years, you know, the last two specifically is like when was the last time they put like two consecutively good, complete hockey games together? I couldn't even tell you. Couldn't even tell you. You know, it's just been so goddamn long and. 
you know, it's where some of the Provorov stuff, you know, there have been all kinds of fucking rumors about this guy lately, you know, and what is and isn't true is hard to, to, to weed out. But, you know, I almost don't blame Provorov in a way. You know, this is one of the hardest working guys both on and off the ice. And, you know, the, the, the determination, the will, the compete level is clearly there, you know. And you just spend years being the guy working hard when the ship is sinking. You know, at what point do you throw your hands up in the air and go, what the hell am I working so hard for if nobody else is? You know, I, I feel like that's probably where he's at and why his play has slipped to the level that it has, and he's not even kind of trying to bail himself out anymore. You know, I, I, I do think that if you put him on a team with a competent partner and a competent just defense in general, he's going to look like a million bucks again. And, you know, it's a trade that, People are going to complain about, you know, oh, well, we got rid of Provorov. It's what we wanted. And then he goes to, as you mentioned, L.A. with Drew Doughty. And he plays with him. And he gets, you know, he's got Mikey Anderson below him and all that shit going on. And he'll look great, you know. And, well, I never wanted Provorov. We didn't get enough. You know, are you willing to sell low on Provorov rather than just blame the players around him? And I don't know. And that goes back to the whole thing. What the hell are we trying to retool this mess for? <laughs> Why not just strip it down to the fucking studs and try again? But, you know, they'll get there sooner or later. If they don't fucking put a competitive team in the ice for whatever reason next season, I would assume that, you know, they have got no choice but to start tearing it down. But, you know, I guess we'll burn that bridge when we get there. Yeah, the Provorov stuff... To me, like, obviously, I'm probably the biggest Provorov defender there is, but at this point, there is some valid... There's something valid to the argument of arguing that, you know, he himself just has to be better, and he's one of the reasons this team is torpedoing. Mm -hmm. But he's probably a guy who looks around the NHL and sees other defensemen in his age group slash, you know, tier, and how their respective teams have handled them. By getting them consistent partners. Yeah. Like, you look at Kale McCarr. They go out and they get Devontae's for him. You look at Miro Heiskanen. He's playing with Essa Lindell and or John Klingberg. Or back in the day, last season, it was Jamie Oleksiak. You look at a guy like Morgan Riley, who early on in his career had a tough time finding a consistent partner. Kyle Dubas goes out and gets TJ Brody. You look at a guy like Oliver Shillington up in Calgary, a young up-and-coming defenseman. Calgary goes out and gets Chris Tanev. Shea Theodore, young up-and-coming defenseman in Vegas. They uh, go out and I believe they got Alec Martinez to play alongside him. There is something to the fact of non-elite level defensemen, or even some elite level defensemen like Kale McCarr and probably Miro Heiskanen, needing just a stable guy beside them so they could have the confidence to play all on their own. And you look to the Buffalo Sabres right now, and they're looking for a partner for Owen Power. Owen Power has not even played in the <laughs> NHL yet. Yeah. And they're already saying, like, okay, we got to go out and find a guy to help him. Kind of like what the St. Louis Blues did back in, I believe it was 2013 when they traded for Jay Bomeister to play alongside a young Alex Petrangelo. And like you said, you have a guy like Ivan Provorov, arguably the hardest working guy on the team in terms of conditioning and in the weight room and all that, who has played like a top 10 defenseman in the NHL before. We've seen it on two separate occasions. 
probably getting to the point where he's saying, you know what? Fuck this. I love Justin Braun, but he doesn't deserve to be anywhere near my level. You can't get anyone else who could even stay healthy. We know that he was very tight with with Matt Niskanen. He was developing a good relationship with Ryan Ellis, like going for breakfast every day and shit like that. And we saw him playing excellent hockey beside Ryan Ellis. And even in some of the months uh, or some of the weeks, rather, following Ellis being out, like he held that level of play for quite some time. But the cream eventually rises to the top. And when you have a guy like Justin Braun consistently playing 20 plus minutes per game, it's inevitable that it's going to fall off. And there's something to be said about having that calming force beside you to be like, okay, if I do this, you know, I'm not going to get burned on the other end because of my partner. And look, this isn't me saying that Ivan Provov is Victor Hedman as long as he has Ryan Ellis or Matt Niskin beside him. But I think there's just a long list of evidence here that guys in that tier, the step below the elite number one bona fide defenseman, needing just a capable partner to stabilize everything. And and that's kind of been the thing that I've seen through social media is the people that want to trade Provorov are discounting the fact that he's not playing with Ellis. Oh, he's not playing with Oh, it doesn't matter. He should be good enough. And it's like, how many defensemen in the league right now are good enough to succeed by themselves, you know, play at their top peak level by themselves, five, maybe, you know, you need a good partner for a defenseman, plain and simple, you know, you're going to succeed if you put him with somebody. This, you know, the Ellis injury sucks. It's unfortunate that he has not been here all season. Because I think he would look, I think Provar would look just fine next to Ellis. And I think if Ellis comes back healthy next year and Provar is still here, that pair is going to look good. You know, it's just a matter of, of what your expectations are for Provarov. And I just find it so strange that we're so ready to give up on this guy when he's been put in such a shitty situation for the last few years, you know, and, and this ties into Morgan Frost and we'll close out talking about him in, in a few minutes. But, you know, I noticed this with Frost when he plays in the NHL and it's not with Giroux and Cam Atkinson or Konechny or whoever. It, well, the play doesn't count because he's not playing with the best guys, you know, and they're not in the same scenario. Frost is a prospect. Provo is an established vet at this point. But if, Frost's play is not good when he's not with his top guys, the guys that can help him succeed. Why is he getting the benefit of the doubt, whereas Provrov is not succeeding with a partner that could drag the best out of him, but then it's his fault and he needs to go? You know, you got to find chemistry. Hockey's not a one-man sport. There are very few people, forwards or defensemen, in the league that can play, you know, in a stratosphere all their own. You know, and Provorov is just not one of those guys. You know, we you just listed some off. You listed some off last week. Like, the number team's quote-unquote number one defenseman that then need a solid number two to play with. That's not uncommon. That's the norm. Provorov playing with a 35-year-old Justin Braun. And listen, I love Justin Braun. I think he's been probably, you know, the, the biggest unsung hero in this team for the better part of two, three years now. But, fuck! You know, he, he's 35 years old. He's a stay-at-home guy. He's not fast. He's not particularly skilled offensively. Like, Provorov just needs somebody of his caliber to play with, and he hasn't had that. 
It's no fucking coincidence this guy was the best of his career under Matt Niskin. It's no coincidence that he succeeded, uh, at least to some extent, with Shane Goss's bear. What was that, 17-18? He had almost 20 goals that year, right? Like, it's just, we've seen Provorov be good when he's put in a chance to succeed. So I firmly believe that if you give him a chance to succeed, he's going to be good again. Whether it's the Flyers or not. You know, again, trade him to L.A. and he plays with Drew Doughty. He's going to look fucking good. You know, it's just a matter of whether you want to take that risk. Do you risk trading him? That feels like a trade that you're going to make. You're going to sell low on him. You're going to get a, a first-round pick and a mediocre prospect. He's going to go into L.A. and be great. And you're going to fucking hate yourself for doing it. You know, you're going to regret that immediately. So, you can do that. That's fine. But, you know, just just be careful what you wish for when you trade Provorov. That's all I got to say. And and the two people that pe- – or the two players that people often refer to as who they want to replace Ivan Provorov are Chikrin and Hampus Lindholm. Yeah. Because those are the two guys that are theoretically available here. Neither of those guys are that much better than him. Like Chikrin probably has a higher ceiling, a year younger, I would say is a slightly better defenseman, certainly offensively. But obviously this was three days ago. So obviously things could have changed since then, but I ran some numbers. In terms of Corsi, Provorov's at 46.74, Chikrin's at 45.52, uh, Lindholm is 48.49. Expected goals 4 per 60. Provorov 2.24, Chikrin 1.92, Lindholm 2.3. Expected goals against per 60. Provorov 2.67, Chikrin 2.46, Lindholm 2.69. Offensive zone start percentage, Provorov 42.2, Chikrin 44.4, Lindholm 52%, and then their 5-on-5 time on ice is all fairly identical, give or take 15 seconds or so, around 18 and a half minutes a game. That, to me, is changing four quarters for a buck. Yeah. I don't know about you. It seems to me that all those four, all those three guys are in and around the same tier. So if you took Chikrin or you took Lindholm and you put them on the top pair with Justin Braun this season, how much better are we actually expecting the results to be? And, you know, I think Chikrin is probably better. But I agree. If, if we're assuming that they're all playing well, they're all playing at their peaks, like... Chickering's probably better, but not substantially. And I think Lindholm is probably a lateral move to Provorov on a good day, right? And- Maybe slightly better if you want to do it, but more or less the same. And it's like, you know, even if you want to get Chickering, like the fucking price tag on that guy's head. No, I probably won't, he won't get moved to the deadline. Apparently he's going to be out for a couple weeks with injury. Uh, so this would be, an, you know, an off-season conversation. But, you know, you're not going to trade Chickering one for one for Provorov. You know, that's not going to happen. doesn't make, you know, not only is Chickering probably more valuable, but, you know, Arizona wants to get younger. It doesn't make any fucking sense for them to trade somebody who's older and still under contract for a long time, and they're just going to flip him anyway. You know, you would need to almost make that two separate deals, trade Provorov for a bunch of draft picks and trade the draft picks for Chickren. But regardless, you know, is that enough of a move to to warrant that? 
you know, if you want to talk about maybe Sanheim for Chikrin, you know, maybe then we're talking about a big enough upgrade where you can roll with a Prover of Chikrin next year and you get something good out of both of them. But I don't know. I just, <laughs> this just doesn't seem like a fucking, any substantial upgrade out there. And it's the same problem with the fucking right-handed defenseman of Ristolainen. We didn't even talk about that guy today. But, you know, people complain about him all he wants, but, you know, were there any legitimately better options out there that were within the realm of possibility? And that answer is no. So... You know, maybe if a defenseman comes available, we'll see what the trade market looks like as we get closer to the offseason and, and the draft and whatnot. You know, I'm sure one or two players will become available that we haven't heard of yet. But for the time being, like, I, I just don't see a situation where trading Provorov works out perfectly in your favor and you get a substantial upgrade in doing so. And that's the entire part about this is like what you would have to do to swing a deal to bring in a Lindholm or a Chikrin. Is it worth it in terms of what the actual upgrade would be? Lindholm to me kind of scares me because he's 28 years old. I believe he's three, two and a half, three years older than Ivan Provorov. And he's going to command, you know, upwards of $8 million a year. So do you want to lock in a guy probably on a six or seven year term at seven to eight million dollars when you have Provorov locked in at 6.75 and that's the other thing a lot of people are saying like well for the money he gets paid he should be a elite level defenseman no actually he shouldn't (laughs) 6.75 million dollars is the going rate for a very good number two defenseman yeah look at some of the money that elite level number ones are getting they're all over nine million dollars even a non-elite guy like darnell nurse got over nine million dollars so I, I don't know why people try and say that his contract is bad. I would say that his contract is the best thing he has going for him because it's so attractive. And then you look at a guy like Jacob Chikrin, like you said, is better than Ivan Provov when they're playing at their best, has a very good contract in his own right, I think three more years at 4.6, if I'm not mistaken, or two more years, one of the two. But then the thing is, is like how much better are you going to upgrade on from going from Provov to Chikrin to just giving up all the assets that it would take to say nothing of selling low on Provorov that you just outlined the best case here is literally him playing well next season and then if you want to try exploring to trade him then because you don't want this to happen again then you trade him when his values back up but right now selling low on him and banking up the Brings truck for a guy like Campus Lindholm doesn't really seem like the best option to me no, it just doesn't make enough sense to to do something like that. And, you know, again, we t- it was the same thing with Ristolainen. $5 million for Risto is fine. You know, just paying $7 million for Klingberg, you know, is that a substantial enough upgrade to justify all that extra money? And the answer is probably not. Same thing for Petrie. Do you want to give a first-round pick and a $6.3 million for Petrie for, you know, a few more years? Is that a substantial upgrade? Probably not. You know, it's just, it's about kind of analyzing the costs values here and you can hate Provorov and, and Ristolin on all you want but the reality is they're signed a reasonable contracts all things considered and the upgrades are with them available are just relatively slim so you just gotta kind of bite the bullet on this one and you know we'll talk about this trade obviously more as the offseason goes on and and you know as the rumors emerge we get closer to the deadline and we'll see what happens but for the time being I just uh I don't know I don't see a real reason I, I, I just don't see a scenario where trading Provorov becomes available if a top guy does come out there that's substantially better, hey, you want to throw Provorov in to make it happen? More power to you. But uh, for the time being, I just I do not see a situation where you're going to find somebody better than Provorov for equal or less money. It's just not going to happen. 
And then you get into the whole risk to line and war that's gone on the last week or so. But I thought you were fending off uh, several people and your mentions. I've just been... I've opted to start putting out pro Aristolinen propaganda so I can draw the haters out of the woodwork and then mute them. Because I cannot take five more years of shitting on Aristolinen every single time he steps on the ice every single game. I can't take it. So, just... I, I don't... Listen, I don't know what the fuck people want. I know you hate Aristolinen, but... And I've asked this question all week long. for Probably for a week and a half now. Who do you want out of those? What other option did you have besides Ristolainen that made any kind of sense? And nobody provided me a good answer. I heard people say, well, Klingberg. Okay, great. Again, do you want to pay him $7 million? I heard people say Wyatt Wiley, for fuck's sake. You, know? it's like, you want Wyatt Wiley to pay your fucking second pair RHD next season? Good luck with that shit. You know, the, the other answer I got was, well, you trade Ristolainen for some draft picks, and then you sign some random guy at one by one, and you have four million. It's like four million dollars doesn't mean shit. And then the guy you're going to sign at one by one is probably less than Ristolainen to begin with. So, I just listen. I I could rant and rave about fucking this Ristolainen situation for hours, but I just don't get it. I, I don't know what the fuck anybody wanted here. This was the this is what was going to happen. You didn't bring in Ristolainen and give up the King's Ransom you did from last year and not want to resign him. Chuck Fletcher said that, you know, months ago. And that was, again, just kind of the basic, no shit, they're going to resign this guy. And they got him for a good deal. 5x5 five five is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. To get a top four right-handed defenseman for $5 million? Where else are you going to do that? You know, you're going to go after Damon Severson, give New Jersey a King's Ransom for that guy for 4.1. Then next summer you have to resign him, and he's probably in the same boat as Rich Linen as far as his overall play. It's just fucking ridiculous the hate this guy gets. It's just one more fucking stupid fucking thing people want to complain about that ultimately just doesn't matter at the end of the day. Should they have traded him for draft picks? Yeah, maybe. If they were going to rebuild, I would be ultimately very angry that he did that. But they're going to compete. If you let Ristolainen walk for draft picks, you would need to find two right-handed defensemen next year. Two top right-handed defensemen, because Braun's going to leave too. And you can't count on Ellis, you need two guys. Ristolainen at $5 million is the best option they had. And they can still find somebody. Maybe you used to go after Josh Manson. I would assume Colorado's not going to re-sign him. You know, he's a, he's a rental. So maybe you go after him, he's your third-line guy, you get him for $4 million, and you can swing him if Ellis is in health. Like, there you go. You know, I just, fuck, I could rant about this forever. I hate this conversation about Rasmus Ristolainen. <sighs> Yeah, I, I would agree. It's like, look, in an ideal world, you would have been rebuilding and you just trade. Uh, to be honest, I think I said this last week, like in an ideal world, you just would have never made that trade and you would have started to rebuild last year. Yeah, that's probably the best thing. But assuming you're Chuck Fletcher and you have a boss telling you you have to make this team competitive at all costs. In that context, I don't know how you could hate him for this deal. Clearly, he wasn't willing to give him a raise. He wasn't even willing to give him the same cap dollar. He got him at a decent term, at a decent AAV. Maybe in an ideal world, based strictly on play, he's worth a million dollars less, but you have to pay a bit more for right shot defenseman who plays physical, who can play in your top four. Look, am I the president of the Rosmus Ristolainen fan club? No, but do I also think it's kind of hilarious and somewhat tragic that people will be using this guy as the scapegoat 
until the end of time? Yeah, I do. Because Ristolainen, this whole Ristolainen experience has kind of been an exposure of people's inability to be objective. Yes, exactly. And I think that that last, the, the game against Montreal was a perfect example when he did not have that good of a game and there was plenty to pick apart from his game. But on the tying goal, people tried to blame him when he was the only one who pretty much did anything right. Yes. And that's what frustrates me about people when we talk about Ristolainen, because it can't ever be like he's a decent number four defenseman, but he can't be the better guy on his pair. Like, it has to be he's the worst, he's not worth anything, he's fucking terrible, he's this, he's that, he's this, he's that. If your argument is this team shouldn't be re-signing players to those kind of contracts and they should be be rebuilding... I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, like we brought up last week and kind of this week, we have to give up this hope that a rebuild is coming. It's not. And if that's the case, you need a guy to plug that hole. But this consistent just torching of this guy for shit that's not even his his fault at the end, it just gets exhausting because it just exposes who's ever saying this as biased for lack of better terms yep and and there's been a whole lot of it and the excuses are just well you know i just fuck i went back and forth to charlie in this one the other day and he's like well you know they could use that money elsewhere and like the part that gets me there is okay let's roll with the assumption that ristolainen isn't here anymore poof gone doesn't exist gone at the deadline no longer a flyer you still need to find a second pair right-handed defenseman, right? Like, that $5 million doesn't just go towards signing Philip Forsberg, who would laugh in your stupid fucking face if you offered him $5 million anyway. But, like, who who are you going to find to play that slot that is a substantial improvement over Ristolainen for $5 million or less? Who? You're going to sign... Klingberg's not going to sign for $5 million or less. Petrie's not cheaper than that. You know, I just... I don't understand what the fuck people wanted there. If you're blaming the financials on this one, I don't get it. You're not going to find a better contract than a top four guy at $5 million. Fuck! I just... The excuses and the blaming and everything is this guy's fault. Everything is just Lennon's fault. You've mentioned it. I've mentioned it. Manny's mentioned it. Like, the biggest... Plus, they would have had of trading this guy away at the deadline, so we didn't have to hear his fucking name ever again. Because now people have their target. You know, it's the the last ten years of the organization. It's all Ristolainen's fault now, and he's gonna take every last bullet because of it. Because people can't be objective. Because they can't blame the top guys. You know, you can't blame you know your top offensive players for playing like shit. You can't blame Travis Sanheim. God, nothing's ever his fucking fault. You know, it's just everything is gonna fall square on the shoulders of Ristolainen for the next five years. And I don't know if I can take it. <laughs> well. The thing, like, what Charlie was trying to say, I didn't disagree with. I get what he was saying, but it's the part that I did disagree with him on was that he was saying that that $5 million had to come out of the top four spot on the right side. You still needed to invest $5 million, if not more, into that role regardless. Yes, regardless you of could who's just name roll. 
Pardon me? Regardless of what the player was, you still had to fill that hole somehow. Yeah. So yeah. so that that money had to be allocated there regardless of who it was. Where Charlie is right is they need to take money from other places and allocate it to the top of the lineup. For me, the two names that you have to get rid of their salaries and give it to you know, other players to play those roles are James Van Riemsdyk and Travis Konechny. Konechny, I don't mind Konechny as a player, as a second-line right wing, but you have Cam Atkinson now making, what, $375,000 more than him playing a superior role. So now Travis Konechny has kind of become expendable, and JVR just sucks a fat one. (laughs) So that's, you know... Twelve and a half million dollars that you have to allocate to other players. And that's on top of the, you know, money that you will already have in cap space heading into next season. I don't have it right in front of me. Actually, let me check frequently, uh, frantically here, rather. I think they have nine million dollars here as of right now. So you add twelve million dollars. That's over twenty one million dollars in cap space that you'll likely have next season and the cap's supposed to go up by a million if i'm not mistaken yeah and that's essentially with your top four defensemen set your top four your your defense is essentially set aside from one guy on the right side because cam york will be here so your defense you don't have to worry about your backup goaltender is probably going to be uh felix sandstrom as you outlined for one million dollars so you're going to have pretty much $20 million to try and get two or three forwards in here. That's the way I look at it. And that's not that bad, honestly. The problem is, is where are you going to find these forwards? Yeah. Like, you can't just, you know, create them out of thin air. But in terms of the money that you allocated to Ristolainen, take away the player's name for a second. Allocating $5 million to your second pair right shot defenseman is completely justified. Yeah. It's perfectly and, fine number, especially again considering what other options were out there. There, there was not that perfect guy, and this is the part that gets me with this signing more than anything. It's not like, it's not like there are five top right-handed defensemen that were on the free agent market that would have been substantial upgrades to Ristolainen. It's like <laughs> Ristolainen was one of the big fish out there. It's not like the Flyers ignored a better option and went with Ristolainen. There's not that many better options out there. Do you want to take the risk on Petrie? Do you want to pay up for that guy? Do you take the risk on Klingberg? Do you take the risk on... Fa- Do you you know, put your you know, eggs in the basket of analytics darling Colin Miller? You know? It just doesn't... $5 million for a top four right-handed defenseman is pretty goddamn good, all things considered. And he's taking a fucking pay cut, for Christ's sake! He's getting paid less next year than he is right now. Why are we angry about this? Because it's fucking Mr. Lyon and he hits <laughs> Shut the fuck up! <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have a problem with the contract. If you just hate Ristolainen because you just think he's a shit hockey player, that's fine. Then I could understand why you're mad about this. But I just, I don't see that why the actual cap dollar is such a issue. Because you are going to have to give that money to someone regardless. The money and is I the best think... part of the deal. Yeah. That that I thought that when they gave that contract, most people would be like, oh, I'm not a fan of the player, but the contract's fine. But clearly, that's not the case. Like, the 
the report that came out on Snow the Goalie, or was it NHL Rumors Daily or San Filippo who said, I forget exactly who it was, about like the six times 6.3. Yeah. Like, that was That's a, deal. a different story. Okay. <laughs> we can get angry at that deal, you know. But, like, fuck, five, five is fine. You know, if they went six by six for us to line, I would not be thrilled right now. But, you know, when the rumors came out that he was more in the four and a half to five million range, like, that's fine. That is fine. You know, $5 million is not going to cripple this fucking franchise. You know, you may not like the player, and listen, he may not be all that great at certain things, but he's been just fine with Sanheim all year. Regardless of who is leading that pair, regardless of what's going on, Sanheim and Ristolainen have worked well together all season long. So why rock that boat if you don't have to? You know, and again, that goes back to the whole are we going to trade Sanheim thing. That's fucking... I already did that shit today, but... I don't know. I, I, just, I just don't understand. And that's, that's what I was expecting as well. I was expecting them to go, well, we hate the fucking player, but the contract is fine. Instead, people have a bigger problem with the contract than they do the player themselves. And I was just, I was baffled at that part of this whole argument to come out of it. Uh, yeah, it's, um, and it's like you said, like, are there players that I would have maybe preferred in that role? Yeah, for sure. But who, where are you going to go find this guy? Like, uh, you can't just say, like, okay, I want you and you're going to take $5 million a year for five years. And then, you know, put a gun to their head and force them to sign a contract. Like, it doesn't work that way. They had this guy at their disposal and they had a chance to lock him into a fair contract. And I don't understand why people are mad that they didn't want to roll the dice and go after a John Manson or Josh Manson, rather, I was thinking John Klingberg as well, and pay exponentially more for those kind of guys who are both going to be 30, if not older, by this time next year. And like I said, I don't think John Klingberg is that much better than Rosmus Ristolainen. I don't. Uh, Josh Manson, I do think he's more of what the Flyers need, but he has racked up injuries. His play is starting to dip as he goes into his 30s. Like, these two guys are not, like, slam-dunk, exponentially better improvements than Ristolainen. That's what I don't think people understand. But when you present that argument to them, then they always come back, well, well, neither, because they should be rebuilding, mm-hmm. and then we fall down that yep. hill. <clears throat> that's the, and that's the <sighs> tough part about this, is because when you have them dead to rights and they realize there's no better alternative, then... We go back to the de facto, well, they should be rebuilding argument. But we know that's not happening. I wanted them to trade for Dylan Larkin for a year, but I realized that wasn't happening. So I don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> like, I, I just, I don't see the point on, it's like, it's the same argument about when people bitch and moan that the refs change the way they call the game in the playoffs. Oh, every fucking year. Oh my God! They're not doing it. Call the rule book, please. This is wrong. It's this. It's not changing. It's like this. It's always going to be like this. Get over it. You know, like I just even if you're right, even if your argument is a hundred percent valid, which the not signing anyone and rebuilding is a valid argument, it's not going to happen. So why are we debating something that isn't going to happen? I've never understood it. Oh, I don't get it either. And that's been... It's, uh, every time I ask the question, well, if you don't like Ristolainen, what would you rather do instead? Well, I would rather rebuild. And it's like, that's not an option. I mean, we're never going to rebuild. 
Maybe one day. Maybe one day if this fucking offseason kicks them in the nuts again, they may have no choice but to rebuild next year. But for the time being, they're going to go balls to the wall again. We're going hardcore. They're making additions. They want to be competitive. And for the time being, risk line in at $5 million was their best option available when you need all the funds you can to allocate to the forwards. Because you got to really overhaul that shit. So, I don't know. We shall see. But, uh, <laughs> fuck. we got to rebuild, Daniel. Throw Wiley in there next year. Just fuck off. Oh. I need a drink and it's 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to get any Morgan Frost stuff into this before? Or? We can we can touch upon him quick. We've gone long enough. What the hell is a couple more minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, Frost played with uh, whoever the fuck he played with Giroux and uh, TK the other night on the wing, and I thought it was an interesting little development because he played really well, but it's not like he was being carried, which I think is an interesting. It's not like it's not like Giroux, you know, carried him to a good performance. It's that Frost just turned it on, you know, the the passing, the playmaking, the overall ability. He looked so much more confident and better than he usually does. And I get the argument of oh, he's playing confident because he's with Giroux, but it's like, what the hell is stopping him from playing like that when he's with Mayhew and Wilman or whoever the fuck he's with that isn't Giroux. I, I just don't understand. If he played like that all the time, he would earn his way into the top six, which is what I've been saying all fucking year. But, like, he doesn't do that. He just he, does, he can't achieve that next level when he's not with those guys. I assume it's some kind of inner confidence thing, but fuck, if he played like he did last night all the time, I wouldn't be so fucking down in the dumps on this kid. It's... For me, it's more the fact that, like, okay, great, he looks like a solid middle six winger. And I've said for a long time that, yeah, that's probably what he could be tomorrow. Tomorrow. (laughs) That's probably what he could be as of today, an everyday middle six winger. But is that what they need from Morgan Frost? Do they need him to just be, like, another decent 45 to 50 point middle six winger? And for me, if that's what he's going to be, I don't really have much time for him long term here. Yeah. Because you have Farabee, you have Atkinson, you have Forster waiting in the wings, you have Brink waiting in the wings, you have a guy like Lawton who is a solid middle six winger in his own right, Oscar Lindblom. Like, I don't see why, I don't know if I said Joel Farabee, but him as well. I don't see why we should be trying to make him a long-term fixture on the wing here. Now, if their plan is to be like, okay, he's never going to figure out at center, clearly, and we're just going to play him on the wing for the rest of the year and up his trade value and use him in the summer, then I agree with it. But for me personally, if Morgan Frost cannot be a top-nine center in the NHL, he's no worth to the Flyers, except on the trade front. No, and and I just don't... (laughs) What the hell happens this time next week when Giroux isn't here anymore? Then who's going to drag the best out of Frost? Then what's the fucking excuse going to be? Oh, he needs to play with Giroux, but Giroux's not here. Oh, he's going to look like shit. 
I don't know. I just don't have time for the fucking kid, as you alluded to. If he wants to show something in the dying bits of the season here that looks like he has some offensive potential, fine. I do think he can be a very good playmaker, and if he was playing with, you know, the best of the best players in the league, he'd probably be moved to a good performance. But, you know, if you need all those stars to align just to drag the most out of him, and he's fucking absolutely useless when he's not in that scenario, then there's no point to him being here. There's not. You know, you just, you cannot throw the rest of your lines apart to cater to somebody who's not going to be able to produce if he's not in that role. And that was always the fucking thing with JVR. Well, we got to play JVR with Giroud and Katuri to get the most out of him. And it's like, fuck, if you need to cater, <laughs> you need to build the entire team around one shitty player to try and get something out of that player, there's no point in doing it. And and Frost is very much in that boat. And if he can look good and start racking up some points here at the end of the season, maybe we can reassess, you know, in the offseason. But for the time being, I just do not see a reason for this guy to be back next year. I think, especially with all the trading that's going to probably have to happen, whether it be defenseman or forward. Um, I can't imagine his value is overall high, but I also think some team is probably going to be willing to, to take a waiver on the guy and see if they can, you know, become something out of him. So we'll have to see, but fuck, I just... <laughs> I just don't get it. We need Frost to play with it. If he was as good as everyone try and tells me he is, why the hell does he need to be with the two best players you got to drag any semi-level of confidence out of his game? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, you, with Morgan Frost, it's not even so much that he's a bad player. It's just they need him to be what he showed in junior. And I don't think he's going to be that in the NHL. And that's okay. If he is just a solid second-line winger who excels on the power play, good playmaker, that's fine. I just, they don't need another solid second-line winger. That's all they have on this team. That's all they have. They don't even cater to the ones they have, for Christ's sake. You're letting Joel Farabee spin his fucking wheels in the dirt. Somebody put the question on Twitter earlier in the week, like, what do you think of Joel Farabee? I think Joel Farabee's incredibly good. I think if he was a guy who had a competent fucking offensively dynamic center, he'd be a 30-goal scorer, no problem. You know, and you can't even cater to this guy properly. So I don't I don't expect them to cater to Morgan Frost properly either. So I don't know. It's just 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 fuck Morgan Frost. Well, that, well that, that's a good comparable because that, like would you rather cater to a guy like Morgan Frost who only looks good when he's with Giroux and Atkinson slash Konechny and sulks when he's farther down the lineup or in the HL, or you rather cater to a guy like Joel Farabee, who when he was faced with the same adversity in 1920, blew the doors off in the AHL or found a role in the bottom six as a checker, and then when he moved up the lineup, he was playing very well on a scoring wing. Like, Joel Farabee, to me, was a guy who didn't give them a choice but to play him higher in the lineup. Yeah. And when he was moved down the lineup or into the AHL, he completely made the most of those opportunities. The issue I've had with Morgan Frost, and there it's not completely his fault by any stretch, the Flyers do have to shoulder some of this blame, is that when he has been demoted or playing on a bottom line, he looks like he's sulking. Yep. He looks like he's not trying, yep. and that's kind of the issue I have with it. Yep, and that's the whole point I'm trying to make is if he played like he did last night all the time, no matter what role he's on, he would have earned a spot in the top six. And that's the part that drives me the most fucking, oh, we gotta play him, we gotta play him, we gotta play him. And then I'm like, if he was fucking good, he would have earned a fucking promotion by now. What does this team need more than anything? A young, talented center. 
Frost could be that guy, but he's not. And most of it is voluntarily not being that guy. He doesn't fucking produce any effort at all when he's in the bottom six, when he's not in the premier lineup. And that's what we've seen it all season when he's on the third, fourth line. Worthless. Absolutely fucking worthless hockey player. And then he gets prone to Giroux, and all of a sudden he looks like there's something there. One game with Giroux, and it's like, whoa, where the fuck has this kid been for the last year? You know? So I think it is sulking. I think he's just pissed off that he's not being fucking handed it to him, and he's fucking sulking about it. God, drives me nuts. I just don't understand the... Uh, whatever. I don't even know. Fuck it. Who cares? I hate Morgan Frost. Morgan Frost. <laughs> Frost and Ristolainen are those two players that it's just going to be a never-ending debate till the end of time. Yep. Which is kind of unfortunate because I've just grown so tired of both their names. Mm-hmm. At least they'll probably move Frost in the offseason. If I, I was assume- a betting man, I would assume he's not coming back. One way or another. Nah. I mean, he seems like a kind of guy who could maybe push the I guess, a value of a trade in the right direction. I don't think it's much value in himself, but I think if you're, you can, you can part, you can package him with someone and, and he adds enough of a giant uh, dynamic that maybe somebody would be interested, but yeah, just it needs to happen. I can't tolerate more Morgan Frost, unless you're hell bent <laughs> on keeping him in the top six next year, which clearly is not going to happen, you know, and then I just don't see a role for him otherwise. You just can't build a team around Frost. You just can't do it. I don't give a shit what he did when he was 17 years old. He's shown nothing at the NHL level. Nothing. Nothing at the fucking AHL level. And that was always the part about Morgan Frost for me, where I was so low on him for so long when everyone else was still building him up. And it's like, I watched him in 1920 in the AHL. Just be nothing. Kid's got hands of silk. He's got a high hockey hockey IQ, but like, fuck. He's undersized. He's not a goal scorer. He's not uh, particularly effective when he's not with effective players. Like, there's just nothing there. And this year, he did increase his defensive game. He has been overall better, but he still didn't blow the doors off at any point with his time during the Phantoms. He had one goal in one, one goal in one point during his uh, entire five games down there, playing some lackluster hockey. And the only goal he did had was a poke in the crease that Puck was sitting there. You know, it's not even like it was anything overly creative or overly crazy. It's just I've never seen anything out of Frost at the professional level that made me go, yes, I want this fucking guy on my team, where people are still, you know, jerking off to his highlights when he was in fucking the OHL. Yep, that's a good way to put it. Dumb. All right, everyone. (laughs) Fucking hour and a half here yelling about this stupid hockey team. (laughs) Oh, let's see. Back tonight. I'm going to set up a circle tomorrow with Shane. Uh, frequent flyer on Friday. Five hundred episode. We recorded that last night. It'll be up when we hit five hundred. This was four ninety one here. So, you know, within the next couple of weeks, I gotta edit it. I did some drinking and some Carson and a whole lot of things I probably wasn't supposed to do. So I gotta <laughs> edit it to make sure everything's fine. But um, you know, we'll be um, it'll be up soon, and uh, I'll be back uh tonight. So two six seven two two seven zero three two eight. Text us, call us, ask us anything. We'll answer anything. We don't have any fucking shame. Uh, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod. And uh, plenty of stuff on the website. The top five crazy trade scenarios up now. Everyone's favorite biannual piece. Uh, so you can check that out. And uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Marco 25 
All right, everyone. Until next time, goodbye and good night.